Welcome to the Choose You Now podcast. I'm your host, Juliana Hever. Here we are back on our Q&A for the month of March, and I am ready to say hello to my amazing producers, Sanford and Adam. Hello, hello. Happy Nutrition Month, everybody. Yes. Yeah, what's up, everybody? It's National Nutrition Month. How exciting is that? And how how appropriate. <laughs> you came to the right place. <laughs> yes, you well, why? Is it, are people interested in, in nutrition? <laughs> just a just a tad. Yeah. I th- I think I think everybody listening right now is is somewhat interested in their nutrition. And at least everyone talking here is interested in nutrition. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um do you want to get started? Did you did you want to say anything else Juliana before we get started? Um no, bring on the nutrition questions please Sanford. Here we go. So as usual folks, if I butcher your name, please accept my apologies in advance. Um, our first question is from Instagram at Laura Jean N-E-N-C. That's the name. I'm sticking to it. Um, they want to know, is carbonated water or seltzer bad for you? I love this question because I am dying to know this answer as well. Uh, my simple answer is no, it's not. I eat it, drink it. Sorry, I don't eat it. I drink it every single day. And like, you know, you want to look at what you're getting it from. So I have one of those machines that just add the carbon dioxide to my water and it's easy and fabulous and pure water with bubbles in it. But there are some products on the marketplace that you want to be careful of, the ones that have any kind of artificial sweeteners or just added flavors and sweeteners, stuff like that. Just read the labels carefully. Um, Definitely want to avoid the artificial sweeteners, as you've heard me say here many times. And um, yeah, but it's great. It's a great way to get more water into your world. Adam, do you drink seltzer? Yeah, I do. I don't drink like the, like, I tell you what is not great, actually. And I had to learn this by doing a different podcast interview that I hosted with somebody who had made their own brand of tequila seltzers. Okay, so... Well, I mean, in, in, in a high enough quantity, those aren't good either. But I had uh, got into a very interesting conversation about how the term natural flavors is not regulated. And in fact, you can create a bunch of natural flavors, as the unregulated term allows you to do, with a combination of chemicals, essentially creating a proxy while being able to call it natural flavors. So, um, and that, that's, and so we were on the topic of alcoholic seltzers. We were like, that's why when they all came out, they were all like four flavors. It's Cause like, that's all they knew how to do. Now, of course there are more. So that's a long way of saying, yeah, I I've had carbonated beverages and now I drink Spindrift, <laughs> which is basically just carbonated water with fruit fruit puree for those who don't know what it is. But I, 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 uh, I don't know. I'm a purist. I don't know what, I don't know. I would like to call out um, Adam's pronunciation of the word beverage. Beverage. Three <laughs> syllables, people. Very well know. enunciated. And I, I concur. That whole, I learned that in grad school that natural flavors could be 500 compounds. You never know what it is. And I thought, well, that's a little, you know, obfuscating. Totally. Yeah. It's just something that the FDA hasn't really focused on. Maybe they will at some point. Um, you know, when when... When Anheuser-Busch is releasing like flannel flavored seltzer at Christmas time, then yeah, you can't quite put natural flavors into that, right? So Flannel. 
Oh, yeah, I don't know. They have a whole bunch know. of. I don't have a whole bunch of weird stuff. Have we derailed the question enough? Yeah, I feel like I... completely. But okay. that's okay. We're gonna. I'm gonna get everybody back on track. Okay, good. Thank you for that. Thank you for that question, um, Laura on Instagram. Thank you for that. Our next question is sort of like a is sort of like a fast round of questions. Um, also from Instagram, Hajar Rami asked like five questions. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put all of them out there, Juliana, and then you can you can answer them as you see fit. Um, so how do we optimize gut health on a plant-based diet? I love that question. How do you strengthen our bones on a plant-based diet? What are the best sources of fiber? And where do you get iodine on a plant-based diet? I love these questions. Ooh, ooh. Okay. Well, I love the enthusiasm. So thank you so much for all this, <laughs> these enthusiastic questions. So, okay. The first one, how to optimize gut health on a plant-based diet. Well, you eat a plant-based diet that by in and of itself will optimize your gut health. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but I would say primarily speaking, a plant-based diet is the way best way, the ultimate way to get more fiber. And fiber, as we talk about often here, because I'm a big fiber fan, it acts as prebiotics. So what are prebiotics? These are the fabulous fuel that feed the good bacteria in your gut. And when you feed and fuel the good bacteria in your gut, you will then get rid of the pathogenic or dangerous bacteria in your gut. This is so important for immune function and gut health, cardiovascular health, et cetera, et cetera. So you want to eat all sorts of fiber, which leads me to the next of, well, one of the questions that this person asked, um, about the best sources of fiber. So let's just segue into that real quick. There are all sorts of fiber, more so than what I learned back way back when that there was insoluble and soluble, but there are all these different classes of these. Like in the soluble fiber category are beta-glucans, which you could find in oats and barley and mushrooms. There's gums and mucilages, which include psyllium, car carrageenan, and alginates from seeds and sea vegetables. Those are used in the food industry to like stabilize and thicken and add texture to foods. A lot of people are kind of concerned about that in uh, the plant-based milks, but um, those are basically a type of fiber. Then there's pectins, which you find in berries and fruits. This, this helps create jellies and jams because they have these gel-forming capabilities. Then there are these fun things called resistant starches. And you find these in kind of odd places, like bananas that are not so ripe. So those of you that like the, the greener banana, like me, I like the greener banana. Do you guys like the greener banana or the brown freckly bananas? No, I got I got to wait until the taste comes in. <laughs> I'm kidding. That means you like them sweeter. That's sweeter, right, because it's more sugar content in them at that point, right, once they've ripened up. Yeah, yep. Yep. What about you, I Sanford? Like, I don't like bananas. They make me nauseous. Oh, Okay. You then. know what? But you know what bananas are really. You know what bananas are really bad with? Seltzer water. <laughs> a horrible combination, folks. Wait a second. Try. We're derailing. We need to get oh, sorry, back on yeah, track. Juliana, back to you. Right. Sorry, and I almost just spit out my tea. Thank you so much, Adam, for that. Um, <laughs> never take a sip of anything when someone's about to tell a joke. Okay, that's a lesson I need to practice. All right, then there's the. Uh, the, the other places that you can get resistant starch include legumes, which is always so fun to say legumes, you know, the lentils, beans, peas, soy foods, hummus should be a food group. And oats and peas also have resistant starch. And then there's another category of insoluble fibers. And these are really good for GI health and help prevent constipation and diverticulosis and hemorrhoids. Um, so there's so many wonderful ways to get all these things. And how do you just 
sum it up, you just get them from vegetables, fruits, organs, legumes, mushrooms, nuts, seeds, herbs, and spices, and infinite tasty combinations. So how do you optimize your gut and get fiber? You just eat more plants. Hajarami also asked about how to strengthen bones on a plant-based diet. So I would suggest you go back to February's Love Month podcast Q&A, where we did a little deep dive into calcium sources, because of course, calcium is very important for bone health. And you know, not only do you need to get adequate calcium, but you need to have really healthy levels of serum vitamin D so that you could absorb said calcium when you consume it. So go back to that, test your vitamin D levels and optimize them if they are not. And other things to consider are vitamin B12. Make sure if you're on a plant-based diet or over the age of 50, you are supplementing with vitamin B12, getting plenty of vitamin K from leafy greens and consider vitamin K2 supplements. That may be really important for for bone health because we prioritize some of that K for our cardiovascular survival, basically, and uh, we don't want to, you know, kind of risk the bone bone density for that. And the most important way to strengthen bones, no matter what your diet is, is to get adequate resistance exercise. You want to make sure that you are putting stress on those bones so that they stay you know, they're working. It's like use it or lose it. It's just as important with bones as it is with muscles. So it's really, really important to do full body exercises, you know, walking, anything that has impact. So walking, running, um, jumping, you know, going on, jumping on the the rebounder, skipping is a fun way to work on your bones. (laughs) I know it sounds funny, um, but it's actually fun and brings out your inner child too. You know, muscle uh, lift, any kind of resistance training with weights or tubing or anything, body weight exercises, push-ups, plies, pull-ups, dips, all of those things are really, really important for bone health. And then iodine was the last question there. That's a really good question. I think we've addressed it here, but Really shortly, uh, we need iodine, right? It's important for our thyroid function. And because people never really got a lot of iodine, we iodized salt way back when, I think in the 50s or 60s originally. I don't remember that. Don't quote me on that. But um, what's happened in late is that a lot of people don't consume iodized salt. So we're either avoiding it because of hypertension or salt sensitivity, and then we're not getting the 150 micrograms a day that adults need from iodine. So you can choose to use iodized salt. You only need a little pinch here and there to get enough. You could use sea vegetables. That's another good source of iodine. Or you can consider supplementing if those are not something that you want to kind of indulge in. That was awesome. Thank you so much. And Hazarami, thank you so much for the round robin of questions. Honestly, I thought I think that's great. Um, and Juliana, thanks as always for providing such such good answers. Uh, we're going to move on. Next question is from Instagram. And me mech. That's that's you said it. And me mech. These are good questions today because I actually really love this question too. Juliana, what are your thoughts on soy milk versus almond or oat milk? Ah, I love that there are a wall of plant milks now available. I remember when we had the choice of rice milk or soy milk, and neither of them tasted so good. And now there are like infinite options. And so it's really fun. And we get to play with this because they are all, you know, different a little bit, different culinarily speaking, uh, different nutritionally speaking, and different preferential speaking. So you get to have all of these different options and uh, choose your own adventure, if you will. And I'll just point out a few different things that are um, the little nuances here. So specifically about soy milk. Soy milk is great because it's got those omega 
three fatty acids, like a great segue to that. It also has great, you know, essential amino acids and it's really nice and creamy and it does really well in certain recipes. And almond milk is not the most nutritionally dense of all of them. And it tends to be a little watery. It tends to be a little bit more neutral. So sometimes that works better in a certain recipe if you prefer that. Oat milk tends to be a little grainier and a little bit more new on the plant-based milk spectrum. A lot of people love them in a latte. I'm not big on oat milk. I just haven't experimented too much with it. I happen to be really into cashew milk these days. Like I'm kind of obsessed with cashew milk because it's so neutral and so creamy and so delicious. My overall thoughts on plant milks, generally speaking, is make sure you're getting unsweetened because they could be packed with sugars. And if you're buying it rather than making it at home, which most people do, I mean, I totally buy it, but you could save money and you can make them very extra pure if you do it at home. But if you buy them in the store, it's a, it's a way to get your calcium, vitamin D, and B12. It's usually fortified with all of those things, uh, just like dairy milk is fortified with D and all that. So that's a good thing to consider too. So read the labels, make sure that it's as few ingredients as possible. Or try making them at home. It's actually really super simple. You get a, a nut a nut bag where you could actually bl- blend up almonds and water and just puree out or just squeeze it through that bag and get rid of the fiber and you have a delicious almond milk. Um, you could do that with oats too. You can make soy milk. There's all these great kind of devices out there. So you can make your own and sometimes they taste even better when you make them fresh. You know, one thing I've noticed too, I live in New York City and there's a lot more ads everywhere for oat, excuse me, for milk alternatives, which is really interesting to me. Like it, it's, it's become mainstream and, and um, there are, like you said, a lot of choices. And as someone who is lactose intolerant, I love these choices. So, so that's, that's terrific. Um, thank you for that. Next question. Here we go. I just, I happen to love this Instagram handle. Grady loves veggies. Grady, nicely done. Um, <laughs> Grady wants to know, Juliana, what are your thoughts on a 24 to 48 hour water only fasting? Are there benefits? Are there negatives? What do you think about that? Uh, such a great question. Grady loves veggies. And yes, I love your handle as well. I love veggies too. You are my people. So I love to go back to Hippocrates' great quote of healing is a matter of time, but it is sometimes also a matter of opportunity. And also Hippocrates has been known to say that the natural healing force within each of us is the greatest force in getting well. Basically, we need to get out of our body's way so it could do what it does best and heal. And when you eat, anytime you're digesting, it's really stressful on the body. And it basically takes a lot of energy and resources to go through that food and digest and metabolize and absorb it. So taking some time off is a really good thing to do. Whether we do this for, you know, a a period of time every day, you know, most of us do at least while we're sleeping, or if it's, you know, people want to do a longer term fast. So there's so much evidence about this, but essentially we need some time without food. This is when our bodies regenerate, restore, rejuvenate, repair, really, really important. Of course, I have to say, please consult with your healthcare provider if you're going to embark on any type of quote unquote fast. Uh, That's really important. Some people really need to be supervised, especially if there's some health conditions, especially if you're on any kind of medication. Certain medications can definitely be influenced by by diet or lack of, of lack of calories. So that's really important. But what happens is 
when you're not eating, all these beautiful mechanisms take place, this incredible, you know, cascade of events that takes place because your body knows exactly what to do. We tap into our fat storage and we go through this thing called autophagy, which is a remarkable process where the cells look within themselves and do all of that metabolic house cleaning that needs to take place. It gets rid of junk DNA. It gets rid of, you know, viruses and cancer cells. It, and it's really helpful. And we've seen that this helps slow down aging. It helps you know, actually maintain muscle mass. It helps with things like improving high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, obesity, immune and inflammatory conditions. The world of fasting is extraordinary. The research is just, it just, it's been around forever. There's nothing new by any means. The other good news is that long-term effects of short-term fasts seem very promising. So even if you do a three-day fast every other week, you know, to get control of one of these these conditions you may be having, there's a lot of evidence that this will be effective to help manage that condition and actually improve that addition, that that, that condition in the long term. You can listen about more of this um, in our September 2021 episode where we interviewed Dr. Alan Goldhammer, who's a founder of the True North Health Center, where they fast people with all sorts of conditions. But I'll tell you this, you know, one way to implement fasting, and fasting really is really considered more than three to five days. A lot of us, most anyone could go three days without food and be completely fine and actually do really well. Um, Again, please see your healthcare professional. But generally speaking, a lot of people can be very fine for three days without any food. But if you're going to go more than three to five days, you will probably need to be supervised. Um, But the one thing you can do to gain all of these advantages in the least challenging, the least disruptive way is with the practice that I highly recommend and practice myself. And that is time-restricted eating or time-restricted feeding. So basically, it's limiting the window that you're in the fed state. So I eat once or twice a day. I keep my fed window to no more than six hours a day, meaning I'm in a fasted state between 18 and 23 hours a day. And it's just that's a way to give my body a break from digestion and metabolism or not metabolism, you're always metabolizing, but digestion and absorption. And it, it's been something I've, I've gotten used to over time with practice. And I feel really good when I eat that way. So, you know, it's a great way to do it. It's really easy. And it's not like overwhelming as, in, as a five-day water-only fast would be. But there's just many ways to look at this. And I highly recommend you dig deeper into this because I think it's a, an extraordinary, powerful tool in our armamentarium towards optimal health. I love that. That is not the answer that I thought you were going to give. Um, nicely done. Thank you, Grady Loves Veggies. Please send us more questions because I'd love to say your name again. Um, <laughs> our next question is from uh, Facebook. Bill on Facebook wants to know, how do I eat a plant-based diet since I'm on warfarin and have to avoid vitamin K? This is an important question. Thank you, Bill, for asking this. So warfarin, aka Coumadin, is a drug used as a blood thinner. Vitamin K is a vitamin that helps your blood clot, and therein lies a conundrum. Eating high levels of vitamin K can reduce the efficacy of the medication, and that can be problematic, of course. So ironically, vitamin K is found especially high in one of the healthiest food of all time, leafy green vegetables. So there's good news though. All you have to do, Bill, is commit to a certain amount of leafy greens a day. Like I'm going to eat four cups. Let's, let's be like optimistic here. I'm going to eat four cups of leafy greens every single day. Then you tell your physician how much you're going to commit to. 
And then your physician can titrate your medications accordingly. So then you get the best of both worlds. In fact, sometimes you could actually improve the condition that's leading you to need your warfarin so much by eating a plant-based diet that maybe you could even, you know, reduce your medication overall long-term. So this is a really worthwhile venture that I recommend you uh, pursue. Thank you for that question, Bill. And thank you for that answer, Juliana. Um, our next one, another Instagram um, handle that I really love, Faster Foxtrot wants to know um, what our take is or what your take is on Dr. Greger's Daily Dozen. And I think I can speak for Adam when I say, we love Dr. Greger. We love him. He's one of our favorite guests. We don't really play favorites here, but we really, we really love and admire him. So um, what do you think, Juliana? What, what do you think about that? Yes, I too love Dr. Michael Greger, and um, he is a dear friend. We agree on everything. Every time we've done, we've done like doctor dietitian panels. We've done so many things together, and we always agree on everything. So his daily dozen is fabulous. I have my six daily threes, and they're all, of course, in alignment. So everything we say um, is on the same page. So, yep, Dr. Daily, Dr. Greger's daily dozen. Basically, it's Beans, berries, other fruits, cruciferous vegetables, greens, other vegetables, flax seeds, nuts, spices, whole grains, beverages, and exercise, and uh, very similar to my six daily threes. And all of these are very health promoting, and I highly recommend them. But do any of them um, can do any of them use seltzer for Adam? Yep, beverages probably. <laughs> <laughs> Um, here we go. So thank you for that, uh, Faster Foxtrot. Again, please feel free to send us more questions so I can say your name again. Um, on Instagram, Ember789 wants to know if menopausal women really do need more protein. Thank you for asking this question. So, you know, we don't really like to talk about the P word because it doesn't really matter so much about protein. However, once we get into the the older years, shall we say, it does seem to be a kind of shift, honestly. So if we're really looking at this, what I always say is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not making this up, but the recommendations are about, about 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight per day for the average adult to get from protein. This ends up being about 10 to 15% of our total caloric intake. But there's recent evidence that suggests that once you, because we know that high protein intake increases mortality, high protein intake increases IGF-1, increases growth hormone, increases risk for chronic disease, increases risk for mortality. That is very clear, especially when you look at the source of the protein, when you're, when you're comparing animal to plant-based sources of protein. However, there is recent evidence that shows that once you get to a, a different age, it's usually, I think it's like 65, 70 where it seems as though it becomes a risk to go too low in protein. And the reason for that is because of basically fragility, right? We get a little bit more fragile as we age. We lose a little bit of muscle. We lose a little bit of bone every, every year. And so it is more and more important to be considering what we're taking in. And so it looks like there's kind of this tipping point where you want to go towards more of a moderate consumption of protein. And so that looks like going towards more closer to the 15% of total calories. And, you know, the other thing to consider here is that 
you know, when a lot of older adults tend to eat less, there's a lot of reasons for that, which is kind of interesting, you know, dentition issues, appetite issues, less active, again, less muscle, all those different things could lead to a lower appetite. So with that, there's less room for fluffy calories. Like everything matters more. This is when you really do need to prioritize the six daily threes even more because every bite matters. The less you eat, the more it matters what you do eat. And the other part of this is that it is very, very clear, no matter how much protein you need to consume, no matter which part of your life, life you're in, basically under 60 and then over 60, is that plant-sourced protein is definitely associated more and more, like abundantly so in the literature, with a lower risk of death from all causes, you know, lower mortality, lower chronic disease risk, whereas animal protein uh, is the opposite. So animal protein is associated with an increased risk for mortality and chronic disease. So yes, after the age of 60, you may need slightly more protein, and it should always, no matter where you are in your lifespan, it should always be prioritized to come from plant sources. So again, the best sources of plant protein are the legumes, the lentils, peas, beans, hummus, soy foods, and nuts and seeds. And if you go to the six daily threes, you will get adequate amounts. So you really don't even need to go over 15% of your total calories. And it's really not that hard to do if you're prioritizing those six daily threes. Very good. Adam, that is a very useful question and answer for you in particular. Well, I appreciate it being asked then. <laughs> um, here's our last question. So it is National Nutrition Month. Um, and I don't know if our lovely listeners have, have realized, but all of our questions today have been all about nutrition. There is one last question um, from Steve on Facebook that I included here just because I think it's a really relatable question and I really appreciate that he's asking it. Um, Steve is saying to you, Juliana, Juliana, convince me to exercise and please note that I never regret doing nothing. So convince all of us to exercise, please. No. <laughs> no. I figured that was going to be the answer, actually. Really? No? I stopped trying to convince anyone to do anything a long time ago. I will tell you all of the myriad amazing advantages of moving. There are so many advantages for your bones, for your muscles, for your cardiovascular system, for your gastrointestinal system, for your brain function, for your emotions and mood, for your sex life. That might get someone excited. I don't know. Um, there's a million and one reasons to exercise and there's no reasons not to unless you're injured, And but there's still other ways to exercise no matter what your injury is most, most of the time. If you are able, if you want to stay active and alive and clear and energetic, you need to move. It's move it or lose it. And But I'm not going to try to convince you. So it's up to you. What I always say to Sanford, and Sanford, I saw this on our Facebook, like we had a, um, a memory together that popped up last week that made me think of you because we always talk about this. We've been saying this for what now? It's been like 12 years where I, you love that I say, and now you say it too. You will never regret exercise. You'll never regret going for that walk or hitting the gym or taking that class or doing a few push-ups on the floor in between meetings on Zoom. There's never any, like a little bit of movement is, goes a long way. And, you know, I think it's a wonderful thing and there's no right or wrong. There's no not enough or too much. Just do what feels good. Move your body. It'll make you feel good. And if I can add, you know, I really do live now it, when I'm hemming and hawing about whether or not I want to go to the gym. I really do think about that, hand to God, like, 
I will not regret going, but I will regret not going. And I think that is such a simple but important message. And I will also say this, you know, as someone who has recently gone back to the gym on a very regular basis, um, I work out with a trainer twice a week and I'm lifting weight that I've never lifted before. And the sense of accomplishment that I feel and the strength that I feel, I'm not doing this for anybody else, but for, for me, I'm doing this for me. It's not about how I look, it's about how I feel. And there's something to be said about feeling really good. And I think that there is, we are not a political podcast. We will never be a political podcast, but with everything going on in the world right now, knowing that we can do something to make ourselves feel good, I think is a very powerful thing. That is my spiel and I'm sticking to it. Adam, thoughts on this? Well, that probably just inspires me to do something. You know, I, I, I don't mean to embrace Joey Thurman's teaching, but I have been doing quite a bit of nothing recently. And I wonder <laughs> if I could up it in some small way and be consistent. Not to say it's an issue for me, but it is a time trade-off that I don't actively cherish the value in as opposed to doing all of the mundane things that we do all day, which is mostly work. And for most of us being confined to at-home work, there's not much else to do unless you're being overly social or overindulging. And that means uh, it takes a conscious mind. Then again, if you get on the flywheel of feeling good, it becomes very simple to commit to it. So, um, yeah, that's those are my thoughts. It just, it, I think it inspires me to get started with a little, little something. Also, I've recently moved house, so I just don't have things set up yet. But that's, those are excuses. A good question, a good topic, and a nice bit of inspiration there to close. If I can add just two more quickie things, you know, Juliana, you often say about our food that we should really be thinking about our food bite by bite in, in a way. And um, she's nodding, folks. She's nodding in agreement. And but <laughs> but I also do think that way a little bit with with moving. You know, have you moved today? And Adam, I'm the same way. Like, I love to sit. I love to do nothing. I also have a new dog. And so we are forced to get up every day and go outside at 7 a.m. every day. And I will tell you that while it is still a little difficult in that we get home and all I want to do is go back to bed for a little bit, and sometimes I do, I love being forced to wake up and to get out. And so that has actually helped me because we play with him outside. And, you know, we'll come home from a walk and I am, my shirt is dripping. I, I'm dripping and I kind of like that. Um, but I do, I've learned to love movement and I've also learned in my old age, I'm not that old, but I've also learned that movement comes in different, you, you can move in different ways and you don't have to go to the gym every day. You can just take a nice long walk. I mean, you say that, you say that all the time. So anyway, I think that's a nice little end to our, to our national nutrition month Q and A. <laughs> I do too. Thanks guys. Yeah. Just move a little more. Eat a little more nutritionally dense foods. Yeah. Yeah. And and have a cookie once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, producers Adam and Sanford. It's always a good time with you guys. And if you are inspired and enjoy the Choose You Now podcast, become a member of our Patreon page, patreon.com slash choose you now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash choose you now to have access to exclusive content, including today's special answer on omega-3 fatty acids. 
Please subscribe to the show, rate and review us on iTunes, and send us an email with questions and comments at chooseyounowpodcast at gmail.com. For nutrition services and more information, visit me at plantbaseddietitian.com. I invite you to choose yourself now, and I'm signing off with lots of leafy green love.